Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Rusty Quill presents Emmett's threshold was a sprawling wetland, scrub brush and marsh merging into forever. Fog reached up from the point where the swamp and the setting sun seemed to touch. Ragged bands of clouds tumbled out of the west like piling smoke escaping the burning horizon, and the lowland waters of a hundred ponds ran red, the dying daylight bleeding across the world. Humbled by the grandeur of the bottomland twilight, the roadside motel we stopped at rose meekly out of the quiet conflagration. Emmett's Inn was as disgruntled and rickety as anything built next to a swamp. And its owner, a one Branson Stickler, was as much an elemental of the swamp as he was a man. Weathered and crooked as an old cattail, bent but unbroken by a season of storms. 
He emerged from the darkness of his small office only long enough to exchange his keys for our money. He didn't make so much as a whisper when he withdrew whence he came. I was reminded of a spider making for the darkest corner of its web, fly in hand, or mandible. Unpacking the car, I handed Isaiah a suitcase, noticing his hands for the first time. Apart from a very slight bruising, they seemed none too worse to wear from his earlier handling of the pale revolvers. And handle them he certainly had, more furiously and for far longer than ever before. Our rooms were on the second floor, and we had to march through some of the dirtiest halls I'd ever seen to get to them. <laughs> and I'm from New Victoria. Well, I thought after we made the big time as reclamation agents, we'd finally get some decent accommodations for once. You're the one who wanted to hole up somewhere random to keep the bright black from breathing down our necks. And this, dear brother, is definitely random. <laughs> Never thought of myself as an overachiever before. Anyway, you come up with anything about that uh, corrupt Mithra, or the book, or sugar? You know, I can't help but wonder how you ever caught all those exopaths without me. Because exopaths thrive on conflict. The trick is finding their specific brand of conflict. Once you have that, it's just a matter of time. Plus, more often than not, once they know you have their scent, they come looking for you. Yeah, that's not my cup of tea. <laughs> or coffee. But as luck or our new station would have it, we have another option, which is good. Running around out here in the sticks without a research library isn't going to get me an inch closer to the bottom of things. Okay, what are you, what are you talking about now? What I mean is, as I was reading through the papers outlining our new position in legal powers, I discovered that as reclamation agents, we're entitled to our own discovery team. We just need to requisition them. And naturally, so long as you don't feel the need to scope out alternatives, I say we stick with Team 27. Apparently we just call them with research assignments and they hop to it, getting back to us with reports and updates, that sort of thing. Nice. So we can have them look all this shit up for us, right? Well, we'd likely have to be fairly circumspect about some of what we're looking for, to avoid anyone catching on to what we know and don't know. Just like you said, but yeah, they're our private data retrieval team. <laughs> or as far as you're concerned, more people you can boss around. <laughs> Did you see how those cops back in Hollowick snapped to when we flashed our big gold badges? I saw. And? And I think you need a new hobby to vent all your pent-up anxieties. 
but it was nice to be the one giving orders for a change. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> The one upside to sleeping in motels and hotels was the lack of a stable dream signal. The more people who have jumped upon a bed, the more jumbled and disorganized the underlying dream content. A sort of fuzzy hodgepodge of a thousand conflicting dreams. And for me, the gal who has to sink down into all that mess, it was a giant win. Back in New Victoria, I had to sleep-read beds that had been practically sweat through by persons infected with sleep plague. The dreams I encountered were part of the reason why that whole reality-bending mess at Marrow's was like so much deja vu. Still, aside from a bed free of concentrated nightmares, my room looked like it had been moonlighting as a tomb. Everything was gray, either intentionally or by the slow progressive turns of time. Either that or I'd gone colorblind. The view nearly made up for the room, though. Looking out over the vast wetlands, the occasionally visible moon filled all the standing water with silver light. It was one of those times when the overlap between reality and dream was tolerable if not preferred. It wasn't that I couldn't appreciate the beauty, but that such scenes were generally precursors to terrible things, whether I was dreaming or awake. My delusions often started out as a sort of mental weightlessness that followed bouts of horrible anxiety, like my brain had just given up and let the stress drag me down. But typically, that moment of unhinged peace was just the beginning of a very, very bad ride. For that reason, I closed the rags that substituted for curtains and plopped down on the bed. <sighs> I didn't know what bundle of mystery to start picking apart first. Sugar, the various clues he'd been supplying us, or what was up with my brother's newfound resistance to the pale revolvers? Thankfully, I didn't have to choose. Something else chose for me. Something that put the taste of sugar in my mouth. Rosemary. <laughs> Rosemary, it's me. <laughs> your brother, your other brother. <laughs> it was Mr. Sugar whispering to me from under the bed. I froze for a second. Then I remembered who I was what I was. After all, I wasn't exactly unaccustomed to being the voice in the dark myself. If you really are my brother, it's just Romy. Romy it is, then. <laughs> what do you want, sugar? I want to show you something. 
Something you should have already learned by now. <laughs> Near the tail end of his words, the bed started to slide sideways, dust and darkness scrambling to fill the void. With the bed out of the way, I could see the door and the floor underneath, half open in bleeding shadow. Don't worry, Romy. You're safe. Come on down here with me. <laughs> it's okay. Trust me, you won't regret it. <laughs> I honestly don't know what I was thinking. Climbing down into the shadows through a secret opening between dream and reality. Following a monster clown coated in candy and malice. Still, I wasn't completely in the dark, so to speak. I'd heard of this happening on far more than one occasion. Watched it replayed in the dreams of too many New Victorians to count. A passage to and from Nightmare. Here was one of the strange doors hidden beneath the beds of those whose sleeping soul was enthralled to the wakeless. Though I confess, I had no idea how Mr. Sugar was pulling it off. Unless he was more wakeless than either Isaiah or me. Which was certainly possible. The stairs leading down from the door were narrow and damp, the moldering walls closing in with my every step. My meds kept me steady enough, but my mind was wandering all over the place. I couldn't shake the feeling of my latest recurring delusion, that I was my mother Charlotte, living out one last dream as I lay dying while giving birth to twins. <laughs> or was it triplets now? Landing upon an expanse of creaky wooden flooring, the stairs delivered me into a twisting corridor of crumbling stone and wood. Mr. Sugar's shadow played at the far end of it, a twirling mist teasing my periphery. Welcome to the way under the bed, my dearest sister. <laughs> now, I know you know about this place, how the wakeless come and go. But we Strouds, while distant cousins of the Wakeless, perhaps, we also know the way. Or at least, I did. And now you do, too! <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Isaiah, too? Well, not him, I'm afraid. You see, he takes after another part of the family, it seems to me. Why show all this to me, Sugar? What are you playing at? The world is dying, Romy. <laughs> Flooding with a thousand forms of darkness. Floods make islands out of continents. Seas out of lakes. <laughs> Floods define the boundaries better than anything. We need to make sure we're on the right side of the darkness when it is finally fallen, when the world is gone, but for a few floating fiefdoms. <laughs> Sugar, are you really making a pitch for us to join the Wakeless? Do you really think I'm that stupid? Join the Wakeless? <laughs> I'd sooner eat from a pallid pile of colorless cauliflower than to even consider the prospect. I thought you were smarter than that, dear sister. 
Well, you can't really blame me for thinking it. We are in wakeless territory, aren't we? The great unconscious belongs no more to the wakeless than a forest belongs to the termites that chew holes in its trees. Sleep is a door, my dear, and the lock was broken long ago. <laughs> All are free to pass in and out of it. The wakeless are like the proverbial trolls. They didn't make the bridge. They just sort of took it over. <laughs> but that can change. <laughs> oh, yes, it can surely change. But enough about those killjoys. Let's continue with our stroll, shall we? <laughs> I wasn't sure if we were moving or if the world around us was changing to convey the impression. Sugar was still nothing more than a shape in the mist, beckoning me to follow. What's with the book and all the shit about that Mithra? His mask, I mean. What are you trying to tell us? Your want for answers is a shame. It's a shame that you prefer the shortcut to the long, scenic walk. That's all there is, you know. A long road to nowhere. <laughs> Might as well stop and smell the candy canes along the way, shouldn't we? <laughs> I'm beginning to detect a family resemblance, with all Isaiah's cynicism coming out of your mouth. But yeah, I've never been adverse to shortcuts. And what was with the courier you sent to talk to Isaiah? All those spiders he left behind. That wasn't the first time I'd heard about a man who left spiders in his wake. When I was still at the lab, we lost a pretty good science team down in New Vic's subway tunnels. The one guy who made it back, and right before he got shipped off to the loony bin, said they ran into a man made of spiders. You recruiting from the city that never wakes, Sugar? Kujis is a monster of many masks, that's for sure. And he'd certainly reject the notion of my having recruited him. But he's worth the risk. Deadly as a river of venom, that one. <laughs> and he's definitely on my side. Our side of the flood. By flood, you mean all the things, monsters, that are going to be making their way out from the below, right? That's what this is all about, isn't it? Nychrist was just the beginning of a long parade of horrors catching a ride to the land of sun and fun, stolen skins for sunscreen. Just look to your left, Romy. You see, sleep is a door, but it can also be a window. <laughs> there was indeed a window, sort of, recessed into the wall. Ripped bedsheets filling in for proper curtains. It was just one in a procession of windows lining the strange hallway. This one looked out from beneath a bed. Branson Stickler's bed, to be specific, the owner of the motel. I could see him where he'd nodded off in an old rickety chair, feel his dreams squirming around his head. He must have gotten a good look at my eyes when we came in. He was dreaming about them at that very moment staring down at him like cold, poisonous moons. 
I guessed he had tried to stay up through the night, worried he'd contract nightmares from me if he was foolish enough to fall asleep. Now, you just remember this place, my dear Romy. How to get here when you need to. When the flood starts. <laughs> I didn't bother to look back at Sugar. I knew he'd already vanished. Instead, I looked at the glass of the strange window, at my reflection. Is that you, Charlotte? Spinning vinyl was the last thing I expected to be doing in a shithole like Emmett's Inn. But still, a vintage record player was a nice surprise, and I wasn't one to look a gift horse in the mouth. I'd gotten lazy since my sister turned up, leaving all the thinking to her. I didn't like lying to her, but I couldn't really share my methods. I didn't want her to think of me like that. What I'd done to catch them, to kill some of them. The exopaths weren't really all that different than me. They just wanted some meaning out of the world. The only real distinction between us was that, um, well, I'm not crazy enough to think they can pull it off. Change the world. They have their exopsychosis and all that jazz, sure. But uh, to me, it was just a magic trick. And like all tricks, there's nothing but little facts underneath it all. Facts like flies, filthy little flies. Facts like gold kills Umbrian, night Christs need serpent lines to bust free of hell, and biological twins are immune to each other's mojo. I always romanticized our roles, me and the Exos, like we were part of some cosmic wheel, our contests causing it to turn round and round. We were a tiny part of the power that spun the moon around the earth, the earth around the sun. It made what I did to them acceptable, forgivable. <laughs> Everyone talks about how scary the Exos are, but in the end, when I have them under my power, they're terrified of me, of what I represent. For me to have my turn at dreaming, they forfeit their own, sometimes forever. That's why I go to such lengths to catch them. Fred Preston, the ghoul of Reasoner Village, devoured corpses to gain their wisdom, to enter the cycle of flies. Claimed he learned the technique from creatures who lived under a graveyard in the Balewood Forest, distant relatives of his who'd long since gone below, as he put it. He murdered his victims and then hanged their bodies in the sun for three days. Then he'd... he'd eat them raw. Now, he was an exo, so he had his tricks. 
Once a, a squad of cops up in Oneana, New York, filled him with enough lead to drop a moose. And drop he did. But three days later, a mortician who was moving the ghoul's body says maggots got onto the corpse. Says one of the maggots started to grow and grow, devouring the corpse as it swelled in size, until it started to look like the ghoul himself. After the corpse was consumed, the devouring worm completely resembled the ghoul, who, after giggling a bit at the fear-paralyzed mortician, promptly jumped out the window and beat feet into the nearby woods. Naturally, the ghoul's murder spree picked up right where it left off, and that's where I picked up the case. It took me a little while, but I figured out his pattern, his dream. He wasn't eating corpses. He was devouring death itself, removing it from the world, from where it clung most tightly. He feasted only after death had traveled deep into the flesh and bones of his victim, where it became trapped under rotting flesh. The eating conveyed knowledge, kept it from being lost forever, granting wisdom from beyond the grave. The ghoul wanted to consume death entirely, become all the life it had ever discontinued. It was that realization that led me to discover his pattern, how he was selecting the locations to hang his victims. It was the flies. Flies like facts. He was choosing the largely forgotten mass graves of victims from the bygone corpse flower plague of the 1980s when flies had spread death across the entire country. I found his most recent victims on a Sunday afternoon. They'd been strung up there for a while. He must have gotten ambitious, because it was the first time he'd indulged in multiple victims. Not knowing how long I had until he came back, I cut down one of the corpses, making it look like it had rotted off the rope and fallen to the ground. I hid under the spoiling flesh of that corpse for hours, waiting for the ghoul to show. I had to lie perfectly still while he chewed his way through three other corpses. I needed him close, so my power could shut him down completely. It was a well-documented fact that um, he could discharge clouds of pests. Pests that covered exposed flesh and tiny eggs. Eggs that erupted into flesh-eating larvae. So I held perfectly still. All that time and not one tick. But the payoff was worth it. I popped my power just as he sank his teeth into the corpse. Somewhere beneath his skin I could hear the fury of countless insects falling silent. Pushing the carcass aside, I brought the barrel of a pale revolver flush with his stomach. Our eyes met for an instant, our dreams colliding. I'd glided through darkened woods and across forgotten graveyards to arrive here, to confront the man who wouldn't merely taste death, but consume it raw and rotting. 
I watched the ghoul's expression turn to fear as my power washed over him, showed him the limits he'd failed to overcome. My escape from reality, my dream, was over. And so was his. The shot blew the ghoul in half, and I just sat there, covered in blood, new and old, marveling at my dark journey, my hunt beyond the margins. I didn't give a damn about the victims, the people I might have saved from rotting out in the sun, or even whatever justice I might have done the ghoul. I imagine I felt like someone waking up from a good long nap, rejuvenated. No, <laughs> I sure as hell didn't want Romy knowing too much about how I dealt with exopaths, why I was so good at stopping them. Because, at the end of the day, I'm just a bad guy in a white hat. The Sleep-Wake Cycle is a Maltopia production. Today's episode was written by Mark Anzalone and performed by Kelly Bear and Mark Anzalone. The episode was edited by Walker Kornfeld. Sound production and editing was performed by Stephen Anzalone. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Maltopia. That's M-A-E-L-T-O-P-I-A. And if you'd like to know more about the world of the Sleep-Wake Cycle and contribute to its nightmarish expansion... Visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Meltopia, where you can gain access to all sorts of art, mythology, stories, and more. For more information about the sleep-wake cycle and the larger world of Meltopia, head over to Meltopia.com. <laughs>